Quantlayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Quantlayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast. Hey everyone, this is Vikram from Quantlayer. Thanks for listening to our seventh podcast. On this episode, Faison and I discuss a recent Bitcoin ETF filing by SolidX and VanEck, how it's reminiscent of the alternative energy ETF boom of the mid to late 2000s, and also talk about what an actively managed ETF in crypto might look like. We also talk about Zcash's incentive structure and founders award and developer incentives more broadly. We discuss how crypto teams are leaking secret keys to GitHub, a missing deposit on Gollum Network's mainnet, and how to investigate bad code for your crypto investments. We also cover some interesting alerts that came through our platform in the last week. Enjoy. Hey everyone, you got Quantlayer here, Vikram speaking. I'm also joined by Faison, known as The Wizard. Hey, Faison. Hello. How's it going? Good. So today's a very important day for Quantlayer, right? I suppose it is. Today's July 11th, also known as The Wizard's birthday. Happy birthday, Faison. Thanks. What's uh, What's The Wizard up to tonight for his birthday? Uh, undecided. I am in Medellin, Colombia right now uh, with a friend. We're out yeah. here for vacation. So we will probably just go explore the city. Awesome. How have you found Medellin so far? I really like it. I It first came on my radar, honestly, from the opening scene of Narcos where they do like the flyover and it looks really cool because it's like nestled among <laughs> the mountains. Yeah. And it is really nice, just the geography and the weather. Uh, everything's really clean. So I've really enjoyed the city so far. So looking to explore a bit more in and around the city. Awesome. How's the food been? Food has been great. I've eaten a mix of stuff. Like I've had some local Antioquian. That's like the province or the, I think they call it department here. Uh, some of the local food, but also there's a lot of like Mexican food, Peruvian food. I had sushi the other day. You get a lot of good stuff around here. Cool. Yeah. So it's been a busy week for us. We've been adding a ton of new sources to our platform, uh, which has been great. And we've added seven new exchange listings for listening to when they add and remove trading pairs. And I've already seen them generate new new alerts so far. So that's been great. And I think another feature that you worked on was the uh, Telegram client-side filtering stuff. Yeah. So uh, in addition to just adding more and more sources, you know, we've had some of these sources running for a while. And now we're working on the, the second stage, which is decreasing the noise and imp- you know, improving the signal. So for these uh, Telegram chats, the rooms can get very chatty and it can drown out some of the uh, other uh, useful alerts. So we've for now just added the ability to toggle the Telegram uh, alerts on and off. So they're still going to come in. We're still going to save them. You can see them anytime. But if you're not interested in the chats and you're more interested in our exchange and news and other alerts, you can turn those off. And then uh, in the coming weeks, we're going to expand on that by uh, you know adding more features to better filter your your feed. Yeah, I like it a lot because I do like reading through what these admins are saying in the chat rooms. But then it's nice to be able to just filter them out too. So I can just focus on like market specific news right. and then I can just quickly just filter them back in uh, by just clicking the, clicking the toggle. But it's really nice. 
So on on the market side, as far as market investor news goes, we've been seeing some interesting developments come in, particularly on the institutional side. So there was a Bitcoin ETF filing in the last couple of weeks with the SEC. And so the, the background in this is in early June, a company called Solid X, I'm not totally sure what they do. Like I go to their website and they call themselves an innovative blockchain technology company. I mean, it's not clear like what that is exactly, but they're working with Vanek, who of course is a very large New York based money manager. And in the last couple of weeks, they had an SEC filing for a proposed Bitcoin ETF and an exchange traded fund. And this is pretty interesting because people have been trying to do this for a while. And, you know, we'll post a link to the filing itself in the show notes, but it's super interesting. It's titled uh, Self-Regulatory Organizations, CBOE BZX Exchange, Notice of Filing of Proposed Rule Change to List and Trade Shares of the Solid X Bitcoin Shares Issued by the Van X Solid X Bitcoin Trust. So can you say that three times fast? <laughs> I think that'll be the whole podcast if I do. So w- what is this thing? In the filing itself, they're basically s- describing it as a unit of uh, Bitcoin holding. So according to the registration statement, this is what they call it. Each share will represent a fractional undivided beneficial interest in the trust's net assets. And so those assets are going to basically be Bitcoin. They're not looking to invest in any other assets besides Bitcoin. So they also have interesting, it's always interesting to read these SEC filings because they, instead of going, you know, I know it's tempting to like read the news and then come back and maybe look at the filings, but the filings themselves really have everything you need. So according, this is, they have a section in their filing called investment objective. And so uh, this basically explains what the goal of what they're trying to do is. And I'll just quote it. So the investment objective of the trust is for the shares to reflect the performance of the price of Bitcoin less the expenses of the trust operations. And then they go on to explain, the trust intends to achieve this objective by investing substantially all of its assets in Bitcoin traded primarily in the over-the-counter or OTC market, though the trust may also invest in Bitcoin traded on domestic and international Bitcoin exchanges, depending on liquidity and otherwise at the trust discretion. Okay, so what they're trying to do is basically buy on the behalf of their holders Bitcoin uh, that they acquired through over-the-counter. Yeah. So I actually, just so I understand this correctly. So if I want to buy into this ETF, it basically a share of this ETF represents a fractional share of Bitcoin. And I assume that this trust has some cost of operating that they're going to be charging me. So what's to stop me from just buying that fractional share of Bitcoin? What's the advantage here? Because it's not as though. Yeah, it's not. So there is no advantage. So as a retail investor, it probably would make more sense to do that. Even as an accredited investor, if you can easily buy Bitcoin, it doesn't make sense to buy Bitcoin through a trust. I think what it gives a institution is they're going to handle all the custody stuff, like the ETF. So you don't have to worry about that. That's the probably the main benefit. Uh, this early on, is, the, is it a benefit or a risk that you're having someone handle the custody of your Bitcoin? I mean, it goes against the whole ethos of the of cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin itself. You want to be running your own show. Like you don't want to give access to someone else. Whoever owns the private keys, or that person is the one who actually owns the asset. Yeah, because just my gut reaction is I can see the value in this if it was like a bucket of like 10 different currencies. And I don't want to obviously manage 10 wallets and have to keep up with all of them and updating 
you know, it, there's a lot of administrative overhead. But if it's just Bitcoin, this seems less of a compelling product. But that's yeah. that was just my gut reaction. Yeah, no, that, I think that's my reaction as well. So it's also geared towards just accredited investors, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. So if institutions are having trouble on the custody side, this probably helps them out a bit, at least get exposure to the space that they otherwise can't get exposure to. Another cool thing about the filing is it has a little section on Bitcoin, its history, and very broadly how the Bitcoin network works. Section isn't bad, you know, if it serves as a good intro or a good review of the Bitcoin network to anyone that's interested. Another interesting thing about the filing is that they name specific industries that are useful blockchain-focused applications. So they call asset title transfer, secure timestamping, counterfeit and fraud detection systems, secure document and contract signing, and distributed cloud storage and identity management. And I think those are all pretty reasonable. I mean, we talked about that yeah. these on our last podcast, right? Yeah. And then they get into the... Now, This is there's a really cool section in here, too, where, where they're talking about the OTC market itself and how it works. So uh, this is a really interesting space. Over-the-counter is what you think it is. It's just uh, a market that isn't through an electronic exchange. It's kind of like person-to-person. So being in the 21st century, you expect trades to be really easy, automated online, happening through online exchanges and, and all that. But there's a lot of trading that still happens off of exchanges. So just think about real estate deals or other large deals. So a $100 million piece of property won't trade on an exchange or a $50 million development deal downtown. These are not deals that you do online or probably want to do online. There's all kinds of necessary formalities involved and whatnot. Because of this, the OTC market is still opaque to us. If you're not heavily involved in the local real estate market, you're not going to know exactly what's going on or what kind of deals are happening, that sort of thing. Right. So this is kind of like an institutional version of local Bitcoins. That's, that's kind of like the, the, what the OTC market is. Uh, and so they have a little description of the OTC market. It's kind of funny. I'm just going to read it. Uh, the OTC market has no formal structure and no open outcry meeting place. Parties engaging in OTC transactions will agree upon a price, often by phone or email, and one of the two parties will then initiate the transaction. For example, a seller of Bitcoin could initiate the transaction by sending the Bitcoin to the buyer's Bitcoin address. The buyer would then wire U.S. dollars to the seller's bank account. That's about as informal as it gets, right? Right. They're not meeting under a tree somewhere. Right. (laughs) This part was really interesting too. U.S. dollar OTC Bitcoin trading volume globally represents approximately 50% of the trading volume of Bitcoin traded globally in U.S. dollars. So, you know, half goes through exchanges, then half goes through this OTC market. So any kind of insight into this market is always really interesting. Yeah, I remember actually when we were uh, in, the, you know, in New York around consensus, we had talked to some people that had been going to some of the events where there was they were talking about some very large uh, OTC deals happening from a lot of these, you know, family accounts. Right. And then they have a little comment about the o- they'll only participate in U.S. dollar denominated exchanges. So that limits to them to exchanges like Bitstamp, GDAX, Gemini, ItBit, Bitflyer, and Kraken. Okay. The other interesting thing about this piece, they have a section titled, because this, this was just brought to mind what we were just talking about earlier with respect to custody. And... Why is an institution you might care about this ETF? So they have a section called Bitcoin Security and Storage for the Trust. And here they go through how they intend to store the Bitcoin they own on behalf of their clients. And I'm just 
for whatever reason, I'm just picturing all these people in suits carrying around air-gapped computers, but this is what their description is like. The trust will secure Bitcoin using multi-signature cold storage wallets in industry best practice. A cold storage wallet is created and stored on a computer with no access to a network, i.e. an air-gapped computer with no ability to access the internet. Such a computer is isolated from any network, including local or internet connections. A multi-signature address is an address associated with more than one private key. For example, two of the three addresses requires two signatures out of the three from two separate private keys out of the three to move Bitcoin from a sender address to a receiver address. And also that the movement of Bitcoin will require physical access to the air-gapped computers and use of multiple authorized signatures. And they have this little bit about how they have a backup and disaster recovery process and the trust will maintain cold storage wallet backups in different places throughout the U.S. So what what are your initial thoughts about that? So I think, I mean, that I think is very compelling because as you mentioned before, if if custody is a barrier to institutional money coming in, just solving this problem does have a lot of value because this is something where, you know, even if you have 50 or $100 million you want to put in, you don't want to invest in managing all of this yourself because it's a pretty involved process to have multiple physical locations and the whole thing. So I, th- I definitely see the value to this. Yep. And it'll be interesting to see how this progresses down the line with respect to multi-sig. If there's solid multi-sig solutions for custody, it'll kind of make what these guys are doing a little bit moot unless they have something else that they're offering. Yeah. The other, my other thought is if these are all like, you know, relatively large transaction sizes, just the nature of this is uh, lends itself to people just holding for a long time. So what do you think a lot more money coming into Bitcoin and not being actively traded does to the market? I, it's a good question. I'm not totally sure. There are some stats around how people who have held Bitcoin for a very long time don't care as much about the price volatility. Like if you bought it in for a couple dollars and the thing's trading at $6,000, if it's at 10000 or 20000 your overall return doesn't affect you as much versus say you bought at 15,000 and now it's trading at six. Every couple thousand affects you pretty dramatically. So I think it'll kind of depend on what happens uh, to the price longer term. And there's also the ability, the harder it is to get out of an asset, the lower likelihood of you getting out of it will be. So one reason that it's hard to do a real estate deal, for example, there's a lot of steps involved in that deal. If real estate was suddenly tokenized or something like that, it was very easy to buy real estate and sell it, that potentially might change. So if all your Bitcoin is secured through these guys, through multi-sig and cold storage and all that, it's likely that you might just hold on to it longer. So I don't know, that's just my guess. And they have a little bit about insurance that I thought was really interesting. So they will have some kind of insurance that will cover, this is what they quote, the loss of Bitcoin by, among other things, theft, destruction, Bitcoin in transit, computer fraud, and other loss of private keys that are necessary to access the Bitcoin held by the trust. This is actually interesting because this is something I was going to mention later, but one of the alerts that uh, came through earlier this week on our platform was related to you know, insurance and reinsurance companies have become much more wary of actually insuring exchanges and Bitcoin because of just the amount of hacks that have been happening. Mm-hmm. Just as an as an aside, um, yep. like I know for I think South Korea, only four of the exchanges are insured. Oh wow! 
the interesting thing about insurance is I wonder if it's if the Bitcoin itself is insured or just with the dollar value on some particular date. Like every day your dollar value gets insured. I just wonder how right. that works. So there, there's a handful of things. If I were investing in this fund, I'd probably want to know. One of the things is, you know, how do fund managers handle bad actors in the OTC market? You know, say you want to trade 20 million worth of Bitcoin. How do you trust what the other side is going to do? Uh, I know there's OTC market middlemen. And so maybe that's what is involved in that. But it's just something that I'd probably want to know. And to go back to your a couple of questions you had earlier, you know, I'm less interested in a price tracking ETF fund. And I'm more interested in participating in the network directly. So the kind of funds that are probably interested in this are just funds that want exposure, like legal exposure, but they just, and they don't care how they get it. They just want to make sure it's legal and that whatever they invest in, they're not going to lose apart from any return that's lost. Like they're not going to actually just lose their, the physical uh, right. Bitcoin. So there are a couple past examples that come to mind with respect to this. So Back in the mid 2000s until a little, a couple of years before the, right around the credit crunch and then a couple of years after, there were these massive solar subsidies countries like Germany and Spain would have. And these were very, very bullish and positive for solar panel manufacturers. So companies like First Solar in the US, Trina Solar, Yingli, these are all Chinese solar manufacturers. They all flew on these subsidies. Uh, there's also a broad public positive sentiment around alternative energy. So investors during this time period just wanted access to alternative energy and they could just buy up a bunch of these stocks or they could buy up a basket of these stocks. So what there ended up being a ton of these little ETFs like German wind manufacturer ETF or the American solar panel manufacturer ETF, things like that. So they could get some country exposure and some sector exposure as well. So there's definitely a benefit to these baskets and ETFs from the perspective, like forget about custody and all that, but from the perspective, if you wanted, if you just wanted alternative energy exposure and you're not actively involved in the space, you don't really have the time to go out, do research so you can know everything about Trina versus First Solar or First Solar versus Yingli, or even know like how solar is going to do compared to wind, right? Like you just don't have time right. to do all that. You also don't have time to look at company specifics, like you can't figure out if First Solar's delivery schedule is on uh, is hitting production or behind, what German subsidies going down in the following year are going to mean for them and things like that. So you just know you want solar exposure and you just want it now. So the easiest thing to do is just buy one of these solar uh, or alternative energy ETFs. So the downside of this is just uh, some math. I mean, if you have a basket of 10 stocks and the top performer is up 80% and the rest are flatter down, you've now underperformed compared to just holding that top performer. So the investors that are going to make the most in this kind of sector are the ones that are probably the most active and right. Like you got to be active and right. You can't be active and wrong. Uh, right. So I remember like during this period, there was these, the guys that were, did really well were these private equity firms who would buy up land or pay farmers to lease their land and just fill it up with solar panels and then participate in a local electricity grid. And this happened in Germany, Arizona, a whole bunch of places. They made phenomenal returns. And while the subsidies were in place, they made phenomenal returns. And then they also flipped the real estate later on as well. So that's what being an active investor is when you take a very concentrated position in, in something that you really believe in and you end up being right. 
in crypto, I think the version of that will be you're heavily participating in the network that you're interested in, that you own a piece of. So I'm not making any kind of moral judgment or anything in terms of how people are going to invest, but there's just a difference between being active and passive. So my primary issue with an ETF like this is like, you don't get any benefit from any ancillary returns that participating in the Bitcoin network might give you. It looks like an ETF. It just marks to Bitcoin's price and then you pay management fees on top of it. So the only groups that really benefit from this, like we talked about, were the ones where the custody issue was solved. But there's probably something that's going to happen as far as second layer goes. As a second layer participant, you can receive a benefit from you know, helping route payments on the Lightning Network. You could be reinvesting Bitcoin earnings into cloud mining power. You could borrow on your Bitcoin and reinvest into mining power. Like, There's all kinds of stuff, extra stuff you could be doing that also helps the network, which eventually helps the price too. So that's probably my primary issue with this kind of ETF. Yeah, it helps solve custody stuff, but then you lock up all these Bitcoin that could have been used for something else. The other major issue too is that this is for accredited investors only. So it doesn't help retail investors. And it probably, I don't know, I guess you could argue that it shouldn't. Like if you don't want to buy a whole bunch of Bitcoin or anything, you're not in the market for millions of Bitcoin. You're just buying a little bit then just go buy it and then store it on your own and don't pay anyone any fees or anything like that. So I, I guess it could be argued both ways, but it is still a problem that all these ETFs and other kinds of funds are only for accredited investors because a lot of other people could benefit from it as well. And so this filing too, while it's interesting, there's also a little comment section where the public can just comment on directly on the filings. So you can actually read through all these comments and we'll we'll link to the show notes, uh, all these comments, but some are pretty funny. I'll read one of them that was uh, commented on yesterday by Kyle McDougall and this person saying, remove the accredited investors restriction. Wealth is not a measure of intelligence and non-accredited investors believe it and aren't actually have brains too. <laughs> please oh, please open up this ETF to all investors, then approve it. And then aside, also too many exchanges are getting hacked. We need different investment instruments that enable more secure environments with custodial services and cold storage. It's just interesting to see how people react to this because they have a point. It's not like accredited investors are the only ones who can, who can invest. Uh, I think the idea behind accredited investors is so that average retail investors don't lose like their life savings. Um, right. So you know, presumably, you know, a millionaire is rich. So if they lose 20,000, 30,000, 100,000 or whatever, it's not it's not going to kill them. But a, a retail investor, it could. And then we have another person saying, OK, that Jason Demick, the technological advancement and economic growth of the United States depends on your support and governance to propel us into the future. A Bitcoin ETF would provide a stable framework for diversifying portfolio investments. And then they quote Abraham Lincoln. The best way to predict the future is to create it. I don't know. A lot of these comments are kind of funny. There's a bunch of these when moon, when Lambo type of comments. Like we talked about these moon boys from before. Someone is saying from anonymous, please, we really need Bitcoin ETFs. The tech behind Bitcoin is innovative. That's it. That's the whole comment. There's a very angry post in there as well. Read this one. Uh, Stop messing around and just have a respected company like Coinbase approve or reject this. You guys have terrible judgment, dot, dot, dot. So a lot of uh, a lot of angry commenters out here. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's more than one thing wrong with that comment. Right. But <laughs> So a more interesting basket we alluded to before would be one that helps investors participate in the Bitcoin network. 
And I think there will be funds like this. It's just going to take a little time. Um, I think Bitwise is tracking, I don't know if it's top 10, top 15 or top 25, but they're, they're doing something like that. And they've also talked about later on being a more active participant in uh, crypto networks. So it was pretty interesting reading through this ETF filing. Uh, some more institutional side news. So Coinbase announced that they added another 10 customers to their custody service. This is an article from the Fort Wayne Business Weekly. So the company aims to have 100 large institutional customers by the end of the year with as much as $5 billion in assets under management. Sam McIngvale, who is leading the effort for San Francisco-based Coinbase, said in a phone interview. Coinbase said it already stores more than $20 billion in crypto assets for clients such as retail investors. So all this stuff makes sense. You know, we want institutional investors. We want to help them with custody. And uh, I imagine having more options out there like Coinbase's custody solution, like that ETF, will help them get more involved. But again, like personally, I think a lot of this stuff kind of goes against the fundamental ethos of crypto about being your own bank and owning your own keys and so forth. But, you know, I guess we have to give these things time. So as these networks get stronger and people want to participate, if participating in the Bitcoin network ends up becoming profitable, meaning you can hold your Bitcoin and profit off of it. I imagine that there will be solutions that help with that as well. There is another really interesting piece of market-related news this past week as well. And I think it touches a very sensitive topic around incentives for developers, in particular open source developers. So Zcash uh, is one of these privacy coins. It was started by Zuko Wilcox in 2016. You know, there's been quotes calling it the HTTPS, where Bitcoin is HTTP. I don't know how valid that uh, analogy is, but I think there's some kind of privacy point that people are gonna, trying to get across. So there's been a bunch of discussion around it and the founder's reward recently. So as part of the Zcash incentive structure, uh, a large part of the block reward, so around 20%, goes to a founder's fund. And this will stop in a couple of years. This, this came out in 2016. I think for the first four years, they're going to have this uh, founder's reward going on. So when that first came out, there was a lot of criticism around that. Uh, so people were upset by it and thought it was a too big of a tax on miners because uh, Bitcoin, you don't have any kind of tax like that. So this ended up causing a fork, the Z Classic fork by Rhett Creighton. He wrote a long blog post about why we have to get rid of the founder's reward. And then uh, there's also general skepticism around the Zcash project because of that reward, people calling the devs greedy and whatnot. So this call came up again in the last month or so because there was a Zcash conference, Zcon, where Zuko, he revealed he's making something of the order of $300,000 per month uh, from oh, wow. the yeah from the founder's reward. So, and it is a lot. So I think it's caused people to ask the same questions people were asking before. So there was a very public approach to this on the Zcash forum itself. And the Zcash forum, it's pretty nice. They have a forum.z.cash. Um, you can just go to that and you can see what people are talking about, what's important. It's kind of like the Bitcoin mailing list, except I think a lot more non-technical people participate in this as well. So Eric Meltzer who is a partner at In Blockchain? His Twitter name is Wheat Pond. He posted in the Zcash forum uh, something titled Proposal to Create a Zcash Ecosystem Fund Directly Funded by the Founders Reward. 
And I highly recommend, we'll link to this to the show notes, but I highly recommend people read this because it's super interesting. And this was his proposal. At ZCon Zero, I proposed to modify the Founders Award to create a new stream of funding for an investment fund that would provide support for people building cool things for Zcash users. Here's the formal proposal, which is very short and simple, and FAQ, which is a bit longer. This should not be treated as final document, so forth and so on. So this is what is proposed. I propose to distribute 1% of the Founders Award to a Zcash ecosystem fund tasked with investing in commercial projects that are complementary to Zcash, but which aren't suitable for foundation grants. So Zcash also, this is me, me again, Zcash also has a separate foundation that is supposed to help promote a lot of Zcash-oriented projects. And this is him, Eric, again. I further propose that the 1% is taken from the founder's portion, not the company or the foundation's portion, so as to not affect the ongoing operations of either entity. So this is me again. He's suggesting that there should be community agreement that the founder's reward is too high and that there should be some kind of redistribution to help Zcash adoption, or he calls these cool projects, as he puts it. So the devs were not happy. It was very understandable. Yeah. You know, when people are working on these systems that have a mon- monetary policy in place, they rely on it for their day-to-day income. So for many of the devs, this is their sole source of income. In traditional open source world, maybe you have a day job and then on evenings you care enough about an open source project that you you participate with, uh, in it. But here, this is what people are doing for a living. And so one of the devs, Ariel Gabazon, This is what he said in the forum. The founder shares are theirs, like your salary and savings are yours. It is fine to suggest to someone that you should spend your money this way. You should donate to that cause, etc. It's not fine to pose as a question to the community, what should we do with this person's money? That question implies it's the community's decision and doesn't require the person's consent. And then, so another dev closed the thread and then it got reopened again. And then it got even more interesting. So... Eric Melter's business partner at InBlockchain is Zhao Lai Li, who was an early investor in Zcash and recipient of the Founders Award. And it had already been paid out to him, but not to others. So that was, I think that there's some worry there about being a conflict of interest for Eric Melter. And so Matthew Green, who's one of these, uh, he's a cryptographer at Johns Hopkins. He's on the team there at Zcash. He He posts a very reasonable response that I'll read here. However, let me be clear that I'm not holding this out as a criticism of Eric so much as an explanation for the surprise and unhappiness on the part of various Founders Reward recipients. I hope this flow of events helps to explain why the recent ZEF proposal has been so shocking. So what he says is that back in January 2018, there was a proposal to create a voluntary uh, ZEF Zcash ecosystem fund, I guess. Uh, People responded enthusiastically and then there was radio silence. So is this happening? Is it not happening? And then more recently, the proposal was to involuntarily take a fraction of the founder's reward away to fund the ecosystem fund. And then Matthew Green guesses, my guess is that Eric's new proposal may have been formulated to help deal with tax issues. So, Hmm. which is interesting. I guess originally it was thought to be voluntary and which seems a lot more reasonable. And now it's more along the lines of we should adjust monetary policy to, you know, transfer the assets of these other people in the Founders Fund towards this ecosystem fund. So 
There is a Arjun Balaji wrote a great piece on Zcash and incentives more broadly, and we'll put that debate. Uh, we'll put that link in the show, show notes as well. But much of his argument is this. This is me summarizing what he's saying. Uh, in order to build a network that is going to compete with Bitcoin, we'll need talented individuals to build it and then decentralize it. So also another important part of the argument is that there a lot of concerns around privacy coin. We've talked about this on a few podcasts now. These are coins that are going to be constantly attacked. There needs to be care taken early on in terms of how these systems are architected and structured. And there needs to be incentives in place for people early on to be active participants in the life cycle of a coin. So I don't know, what are your initial takes on this, Fizan? Yeah, so I personally don't have any issue with a reasonable founder reward because the way I see it, like, you know, there's what hundreds, so many different cryptocurrencies that are all competing for, you know, mind share, market share, what have you. And if a currency becomes successful, you want to keep on the team members that are, that have made that successful. And by, you know, voting, like making it not an economically attractive option for them, you're just chopping it off at the knees and the reality is like if if a currency goes on to become so successful that the founders are making tons of money there's a good chance that the miners and everyone else that was involved early on it's like every everyone did pretty well along the way so i i don't really have an issue with the founder reward as long as it's reasonable and i do think that voting on what to do with you know shares that have already been assigned to someone else seems a little unfair you know after the fact you sort you invested in the community or that specific coin under one set of rules and you can't sort of just take people's money away because they're making too much. Right. Yeah. In particular, this kind of coin too, what I mentioned earlier before was how you have a pretty, like privacy coins, it's not like, I'm not saying Bitcoin is simple at all, but if you want to build a privacy coin, it seems like there's a lot of other things you need to consider as well, in addition to the things that are considering for Bitcoin. And so Zcash is heavily influenced by the academic work in cryptography. So Zuko Wilcox is a cryptographer, the founder, a major contributor, Matthew Green. He's an academic at Johns Hopkins. Their entire team, uh, if you go to their team page, z.cash slash team, uh, has a large collection of these experienced scientists. And the argument here is that all these people should be involved early on uh, in the architecture and development. So you have these as aspects like conception, architecture, development, and then you have within privacy, all this, like how you would deal with all these attacks. You know, these are complex systems and need people with experience in their development. And it's not like they, there was a bad incentive structure in place. You, you at least have like this four-year structure in place where people are going to be uh, incentivized to keep working on it. And if the system is in a good place uh, four years from now or a couple of years from now, uh, they'll probably continue to work on it because they want to make sure that their holdings, you know, hold value and go up in value. So it, right. it wasn't like they pre-mined. You know, people hate pre-mines. Uh, pre-mines are when crypto teams can mine a significant amount of crypto before public publicly releasing their crypto. So you know, you develop a crypto, you mine fifty percent of it, and then you go publicly onto Bitcoin Talk or wherever, saying, "Oh, we have this new crypto," and you do that like in two thousand seventeen, where there's a massive bull run. So. Uh, people have made more money than Zuko has on Zcash on completely fraudulent coins. Uh, so right. I have no issue with him 
being incentivized the way he is. Yeah, I mean, frankly, if, if you know, let's say there's no privacy coins that exist and two launch at the same time, and one of them has no economic reward or incentives for the founding team other than just some, you know, intrinsic motivation to make the coin succeed, and the other one has a clear economic incentive for them, even if I, in theory, there's a higher tax for me as a miner or a participant, I'm much more likely to invest money in the latter because... I mean, one of the underlying pieces of a lot of cryptocurrencies is that the economic incentives are what promote good behavior. And I don't think that, you know, that's true for miners. And I think it's probably true for devs as well. Yep. One thing that I wanted to talk about, uh, you know, last podcast I mentioned, I had bought a, uh, a ledger to store my assets on. And uh, I just got an email. Uh, ledger has launched uh, their new app, uh, Ledger Live. And it's pretty notable if you have a ledger because what I was having to do right now is when I you know hook it up, I use a Google Chrome app to download the different wallets, and then each of those wallets uh, has a different application. With the new uh, Ledger Live, you can actually have uh, just the one app for all of your different wallets, and when your ledger is disconnected, you can still see what the value of your uh, balances are, which is pretty nice. So you you know your ledger doesn't have to be connected for you to have some information on what's going on, and you can just operate everything from one app, and it is uh, multi-platform, so it'll work on you know whatever sort of device you have. So I think that's a nice little step in the UX for for hardware wallets. Yeah, that definitely is because I know like if you, if you just hold a few different coins, it's a huge pain to use. Like you, you need to use your Ethereum app to look at that stuff. You need your Bitcoin app you know, Decred or whatever it is. So what do you see, like, how do you see a uh, a new user uh, reacting to this versus like that old UX, I guess? It's just a little bit smoother. You know, it's an analogy for me would be, I don't know if you remember back when, when you had multiple Google accounts, but there wasn't like multiple sign-on. So you'd have to sign into one and then sign out to check your other email account and sign yep. out of that one to check if you got a third one. Whereas now you can sort of just have them all and toggle between them. And it's a little thing, but it makes a huge difference in how, how easily you can, you know, have multiple accounts. Yep. And so I would argue that making it that much easier on the margin makes it more likely that people will diversify their cryptocurrencies because I think UX does drive that sort of behavior. Yeah. Because you reduce the whole friction around holding other assets. Like if you only want to use Ledger, and you're only going to buy things that Ledger supports, so you don't have to leave them on exchanges or have or have your own wallets on your machine. Then, yeah, as long as it's easy to use and the UX is nice, why not? Exactly. Yeah, we've had a bunch of cool, uh, good alerts come in as well uh, in this last week. I think of like one theme is, uh, as usual, I guess, around hacking and kind of security measures. Team should take better note of so we saw a couple alerts of just teams some uh, pushing up uh credentials right yeah so th- what's uh interesting is so you know we added search to our platform so now we can search by symbol and also by content and uh i was just trying you know i guess keywords that i thought might you know surface something very interesting like arrest or release or uh, credential. 
And uh, what we're finding is, you know, in these GitHub commits that we we crawl, people are pushing up credentials, and that's super dangerous because, you know, assuming that these teams are funding some of these services out of you know whatever foundation money or for that given coin, it would not be that difficult for a, a malicious uh, actor to get a hold of these credentials and burn through quite a lot of their uh, resources, and it's potentially also just a security issue. Yeah, uh, one of the teams is a very large crypto team, and it's a 300-ish million market cap, had a very public launch recently, and they just pushed up their AWS creds. And even if yeah. even if they're not right, even if, if they're not, uh, quote-unquote, super important, they can still get used, right? Right. Like, yeah, in theory, maybe they did a really good job with setting roles and limiting the, you know, what that key can do. But in general, I would suspect that most of the time when a key is pushed up, uh, <laughs> the, the Venn diagram of people that manage their like security policies right. and, you know, scoping resources to keys and the ones that push them up, it's a, there's not much intersection. So whenever I see a key go up, I'm much more likely to believe that it's a lot closer to having, you know, admin level permissions than something very well crafted. <laughs> so you don't think it's super clever, like honeypot to catch malicious actors or something? <laughs> I mean, I don't know what you're catching. That It's not really a honeypot. It's just you putting honey out there and then your honey's gone. <laughs> like, <laughs> so the, the second phase of that is not accomplished. That, you don't really catch anything. That is very fair. Um, Another interesting thing that came across the whole GitHub set of alerts was that a so GNT, Gollum Network, they're a distributed, we talked about it on the last podcast, they're a distributed uh, computation platform. I think they're trying to focus first on graphics rendering. So they pushed up a commit uh, titled Handle Missing GNT Deposit on Mainnet. And the reason we opened up, you know, that sounded a little concerning. Like, why Why is there a missing <laughs> deposit on their mainnet? And... Uh, they have a bit of code with that is a temporary try catch block that basically means that they're going to try try something until the deposit is deployed that the actual feature is deployed on the mainnet and then they have a little comment in there that says they're going to remove it after that i don't know what do you yeah. what do you think when you see code like this so yeah my view is it's it's i would say it's a warning not an error so there's a good chance that something bad is happening, but not a, a certainty. So usually when I see something like that, then, you know, it's it's time to investigate a little bit. So in the case of one of the credentials that I found uh, this morning, I figured out what the credential was for. And then I went to the documentation for that service and I saw that it could be an admin key, in which case it is very dangerous, or it could be a read-only scoped key, in which case you can't do too much harm other than maybe bill that user's account a little bit for usage. In terms of functionality, I think that that, you know, it's a great place to then follow up for more context. Like I'm not a dev on the Gollum team. Yep. So just by glancing at the code, it's hard to know exactly what the implications are, but it's definitely a point of investigation. So if I were, you know, invested in Gollum, then that would be something that I'd want to follow up uh, with someone on their team on potentially that, you know, what's this? Yeah. I mean, the name of the file that the commit is in is Ethereum Incomes Keeper dot pi. It's a Python file. Yeah. 
So it seems important, but like yeah. you said, we, we don't know <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly the context, but you know, it's just, you, you see it and it's like, wait, what, what? Yeah. I mean, for, to me, the, I don't know if this is a good analogy, but if you were investing in a publicly traded company that maybe had done nothing wrong, but still had like suddenly had a class action lawsuit filed against them, it's a point of concern that you want to keep your eye on or do some follow-up on probably. Yeah, of course. Like, is this, you uh, want to know if it got, gets yeah. resolved, right? Right. So it, it could be nothing, but it's, it's definitely a cause for concern. Yep. And most of the ones that I've seen come through, that's been the case. Uh, you know, I follow up and it, it's nothing, you know, critical, like that they're going to definitely get hacked. But I think another thing that we would like to do going forward is it would be good to see how often, you know, a given team is doing like a lot of these patches or temporary fixes or, cause we see a lot of that coming through of like, oh, we just found this, let's put this little hack in till then. And then you'll see we reverted this hack and did this other hack instead because the previous hack actually had a different problem. <laughs> and when you start seeing like that, you know, when those patterns start forming, that's also another cause for alarm. Right. And uh, right, right now finding those is a little more t- uh, time intensive, but that is something that I think would be great to automate as well. Yeah. It's just getting a better idea of like, is it a one-off or, or is there a pattern of just bad work? Right. Right. Yeah. A few other things that I found. So there was the uh, credentials there, this wasn't very recent, but over the last couple of months, there's been uh, apparently there was an assassination plot against John McAfee and uh, another guy that I think was involved in, in something called eBitcoin and had some connection to Mount Gox. He's, I think, been arrested in Greece. Oh boy. So it's, it's uh, Andrew, I don't know if his first name is Andrew, but uh, Vinik is his last name, V I N N I K. So it's interesting to see. I know we had talked about this before with with the amount of fraud and the amount of money in play. Um, it's a matter of time before, you know, something really bad happens to someone yeah. in the space. And so it's just interesting to see that we, you know, it was two assassination plots in the right. news over the last couple right. of months. Yeah, we'll see. It could get worse with the whole prediction. Like Augur just launched its prediction market. Yeah. And we'll talk about that one a little more on a future podcast, but these, uh, this is a very, uh, very interesting space with respect to that. Yeah. And two other, uh, alerts that came through that I want to talk about. I always like finding stuff in telegram because I feel like that that's, we've done a good job when we surface something out of a chat because it's a lot harder to get to that than just, you know, something that's on medium, uh, that might have made its way onto Coindesk or something. So VeChain had their wallet uh, release early and the admins were basically telling everyone, don't use this till the release date in the channel. So I thought that was oh, an wow. interesting bit of information. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, Bittrex got hacked and it was a, uh, it was a social engineering hack. So a user that had two factor enabled had, you know, funds taken because someone basically held up a picture of a passport to their support team and was able to convince them that they were that person. So, as much as the ideal of crypto is to have everything based on mathematical proof, because you're dealing with these intermediaries, you know, all of these attack vectors are still totally open. Yep. And going back to that V chain telegram chat alert. So I just read through it. They're saying, please read. We're aware the wallet has been released before the scheduled date. Like, wouldn't you think that they could work hand in hand with like the dev team to make sure that didn't happen or 
or something like that. So this goes back to what I said before. This is a warning and requires more follow-up. <laughs> it's like, wh- <laughs> right? What is the status of their, like, what's going on that stuff happens that they don't have control over with their releases? And then some other team is like telling people, don't, you know, this got out, don't right. use it. Like that to me is, again, it's a red flag that probably require. maybe it's something benign, but definitely requires follow-up yeah. if this is something I have money yeah. in. Um, and definitely don't use that wallet. Yeah, until it's well, it's July ninth yeah, now. now. It's past yeah. July ninth, so yeah, now you're good. Don't <laughs> don't worry about anything. <laughs> yeah. So another, uh, you know, this was an article that came through, so less of just a, an actionable alert, but just more something that I found interesting. So there's this, you know, uh, Carroll School of Management student basically did a study and found that less than half of ICOs uh, survive four months after a sale. Now. Broadly speaking, I'm not surprised that a lot of ICOs turned out to be flops because, you know, there was a lot of white papers with nothing to back them up. Yep. But it's interesting to see that it's actually now playing out and they're starting to die off. So we'll see what that does for the ICO market now that we're going to have a lot of uh, a lot of gravestones. Yeah, I, I'm I'm just and, reading I'm reading through that alert. I mean, he's saying the report covers almost 2,400 ICOs completed before May. And examines over a thousand Twitter accounts. Researchers gathered data for over four thousand ICOs, which raised twelve billion in January. I mean, these are all crazy numbers. Yeah, and then another an interesting line there is: study concludes that the sustainability of an ICO depends on whether the company behind it is able to list its coin on a crypto exchange. Oh wow, that's interesting. Yeah, so that's interesting because another thing that I've seen, you know, there's a couple of uh, ICOs that we followed where we saw that it was a lot of talk and no action. And they've been floating basically just by every every now and then they list on a new exchange and they're not hitting any other... I mean, they're not doing anything useful, basically. And nowhere near what they said they would do. But just constantly getting listed on another exchange keeps enough buzz that they don't die. So it's an interesting game that some of these companies are playing that aren't dead but aren't doing anything useful. Yeah. So it'd be interesting to see the the statistic of how many ICOs survived and actually provide a valuable service, I guess, or close to anything close to what they said. And it's weird to be considered dead after raising millions of dollars. Because if that's the case, then it's literally just a cash grab. If someone raises what doesn't seem like a lot, but which is actually a pretty big chunk of money, like say you're a coin and you raise uh, $2 million. Yeah. You're not like Uber who's doing another, you know, a few hundred million dollar round. But you, you're like a three person team. You just raised two million. I mean that 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 would be like raising what a small Series A with right. nothing, to sh- like, with just a white paper. It's two million. So it's still yeah. crazy. And then uh, another one that I again not uh, necessarily market moving, but just an interesting bit of information that came through. So there's this company called Hedger Tech, and basically they insure your like the price of your coin. So you exchange your cryptocurrency into their uh, hedger coin and you can basically exchange the hedger coin back to say, like, let's say you had BTC, you exchange it to hedger coin and the price of BTC declines. You can exchange your hedger coin back to BTC at the price uh, that you had exchanged it at originally. So it's essentially a way for you to just fix the price of your Bitcoin, provided that hedger tech sticks around and their coin is... You know, there's a, there's a big a risk, the risk there, but 
Um, what are your thoughts on that? So I think all the insurance type of stuff is going to be heavily predicated on on lawyers getting involved. I think it's a very difficult thing to do with just code. So I think I'd like to see, like say, say you wanted to do use one of these insurance platforms. Insurance is as conservative as it gets. Like insurance companies have been around forever and then they've, you, you know, they have very conservative people that run them. I think I would want to see a firm like that be around for a while or be run by people who have been in insurance for a very long time. Or they have some like reinsurance with someone legitimate. Yeah, exactly. Like if Hedger Tech had their hedge coins or Hedger coins or whatever they are insured yep. then by like Berkshire Hathaway, maybe there's some amount of trust there. Right. So I th- we'll see how they, how it turns out and how these, how these systems work. But I imagine that there will be, need to be some, some gray beards involved for it to work really well. Yeah. I was just fascinated by this because I just, I thought about like after all the volatility we've seen in the last year, who decides that their business is going to be that I will guarantee the price of your Bitcoin. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, it's just a very bold sort of a thing to do irrespective of whether it's a good idea or not. It it kind of coincides with the concept around uh, stable coin. Right. We'll talk about those on a future podcast. There's a handful of guests that I, I want to talk to specifically about it. Uh, but they're the, this idea that you can have a coin that tracks some other asset like the US dollar, like uh, CPI, et cetera. And it, it's not volatile. And this is a very, I think it's a pretty risky way to go. There's all kinds of you know, I've seen charts like this for a very long time where like you have a, a chart of something that's up and to the right with no volatility. And then one day something happens and just gets destroyed. And the perfect example of that is like Bernie Madoff's fund. He just made up numbers like he he had the fund for 20 years or whatever going up or doing well every year and never having major anything happen uh, to the downside. And whenever you see a chart like that, it should give you pause. And stablecoins to me are an example of something where there's a massive amount of f- unknown future risk. So if something's stable for a really long time, it could just stop being stable for some reason. If you have a stablecoin tracked to the US dollar, then it's contingent on what the dollar does. Dollar, yeah, it's fine. It's been stable for for a while, but doesn't mean it'll continue to be stable. So I don't know. Stablecoins to me, insurance, things like that, like trying to insure against volatility always seem pretty hard. Hey everyone, this is Vikram again. Thanks for listening to us. If you're an exchange, a trader, or working on a crypto project, get in touch with us. You can reach us on Twitter at Quantlayer, that's Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R, or email me at Vikram at Quantlayer.com. That's V-I-K-R-A-M, like Monero, at Quantlayer.com. I will write back. Thanks.